It's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels, and I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. If you're wondering, we are going to get to Hosea eventually. We're going to start in the book of Luke, though, the Gospel of Luke. And you'll find Luke, oh, uh, eight-tenths of the way through your Bible, towards the end for sure, and uh, one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And I want to turn, want you to read, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke 7, 36. Wonderful little story tucked away in the gospel. Uh, Listen to what it says. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. The rest of the sentence is, of course, if Jesus knew what kind of woman she was, she would not, he would not let her touch him. Jesus answered. Those are my two favorite words in this whole story. Jesus answered. <laughs> this happens a few times in the gospel where, people answer, or where Jesus answers people's thoughts. This Pharisee is thinking. If Jesus were really a prophet, he would know. And then Jesus answers his thoughts. <laughs> If Jesus answers your thoughts about you doubting whether or not he's a prophet, you can pretty much sure guarantee that he is a prophet because he's answering what you're thinking, all right? <laughs> Great. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now, the order of the events in this story is important. It's easy to get confused because Jesus declares things out of order of what they happened. Uh, But notice here, the first thing that happens in this story is that everybody sins. Well, everybody but Jesus in this story is a sinner. Simon has sinned. The woman has sinned. All the people around them have sinned. And and, and they all know it. And... um, It's interesting, Jesus in his little parable assigns dollar values or denarii values to the the sin. I wonder how how important an issue that is for understanding this story. Uh, Simon, the Pharisee, you know, he follows the 
Bible. He reads it and knows it. Certainly in his mind, Simon is thinking that he's a 50 denarii level sinner. And he's pretty sure that this woman would be a 500 denarii level sinner. Based on things Jesus said elsewhere, I'm not sure he would agree with Simon's evaluation of the the monetary differences here. But but the the, the sin is what, what starts here. In one sense, it doesn't matter whether or not you're a 50 denarii or a 500 sinner, denarii sinner. It doesn't matter. It's, but it's not unimportant. Hmm. Jesus was talking to towns one day. He was preaching, and, and he was talking to some of the cities that he had visited uh, most often, some of the places where he had done some of his first and greatest miracles, were the cities that had heard his greatest lessons, and, and they had rejected him. And Jesus said to them, I wrote it here, Matthew 11, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Hearing Jesus and rejecting him is a 500 denarii level sin. It will be better for you in eternity if you had never heard the name Jesus than if you hear him and reject him. It would be better for you in eternity if you had grown up in some Amazonian jungle where no missionary had ever been than that you grow up in our church hearing about Jesus and turn from him. It is sobering. In another sense, though, this 550 denarii comparison doesn't matter that much. Remember, James said, uh, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. It doesn't matter 50 or 500. It doesn't matter how many sins you have accumulated. We all have a debt that we cannot pay. So sin is first. Then comes faith. The woman has faith. Simon does not. And her faith is met with forgiveness. Sin, faith, forgiveness, love, then service. It's easy to be confused about this because Jesus acknowledges her forgiveness after her service, but it actually comes earlier on the basis of her her faith. Sin, faith, forgiveness, love, service. What, What she does is a sign that she loves Jesus and that she has been forgiven by him, which Jesus affirms with his words on the basis of her faith. What I want you to see about this passage, though, most keenly, is these verses and this connection that Jesus makes at the end of verse 47. He says, If you are forgiven little, you will love little. If you are forgiven much, you will love much. Randy Frazee is a pastor. He, uh, has, for a while, has been serving in Texas. And, and he uh, one day went to visit uh, a man in his office. And he walked into his office and saw behind the man's desk on a, a, a bureau there, he saw a picture of the man and his wife. And Randy Frazee drew attention and said, that's a really nice picture. Tears came to the guy's eyes. Randy Frazee said, why are you crying? He said, uh-huh. Uh, several years ago, I had an affair. My wife found out about it. She was devastated. She was hurt, as you can imagine. She was hurt, and she was going to leave me. She was going to take the kids. She was going to leave. And, and it was when I saw her face, when we talked about it, that I realized the enormity of what I had done. And it just 
broke me. I, I, I didn't deserve it at all, but I went to her and I, I asked her to forgive me, and, and she did. He said, that picture sits on my desk, and you look at it and you say, wow, that's a really nice picture. I know that picture was taken a few weeks after my wife forgave me, and she was willing to stand next to me and that picture. You look at it and you say, wow, that's a nice picture. I look at it and it reminds me of the time that my life was given back to me, and I didn't deserve it. The one who has been forgiven little loves little. The one who forgives much loves much. If we're gathered together today to express and encourage one another in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, it behooves us to think about forgiveness, this issue. Even more specifically, our need for forgiveness. To think about our need for forgiveness in all of its manifestations and shades, all of its flavors and colors, all of its expressions. Brothers and sisters, we need to think clearly about the darkest corners of our hearts. Not, not, so that we can wallow in our guilt, but so that we can together say, my sin, the, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. To help us in thinking about those dark corners of our heart, God has given us the prophets. And to that end, I want you to turn with me back again to the book of Hosea, if you would. I want you to flip back with me to the little prophecy of Hosea. It's actually one of the longer of the so-called minor prophets. Hosea chapter 11 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. Uh, The image that the book of Hosea sets before us to describe our rebellion against God is the image of adultery. We should see sin... A rebellion against God as spiritual adultery. Sin is not just breaking God's rules, it is breaking God's heart. It's not just breaking His law, but it's breaking our relationship with Him. And paired in this book together are, uh, with spiritual adultery is idolatry. Human sin is not just walking away from God, but it is walking into the arms of another false god. Now, one of the challenges of living in the 21st century in the United States is that we don't have statues of wood or stone that we bow and worship or or silver. But that does not mean that we are not idolaters. Uh, Remember what Martin Luther said. Uh, He said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is your God. Whatever your heart confides in and clings to, that is your God. I was thinking about this concept of idolatry a little bit this morning, and one of the things that I observe in uh, occasionally at, at various pastors' conferences or events that are advertised that I see is, is uh, pastors who are trying to think, and they talk about what it means to preach in a visual age. We, we live, they say, in a visual age where everybody has to always have a screen in front of them And what does it mean to preach in a visual age? So they talk about things like uh, incorporating video clips into your sermons and showing pictures and being very visual uh, because, so the thinking goes, we now live in a visual age. What I wonder to myself when I hear those things, I think, have you ever read the Old Testament? These people were, they did not want to worship a God they could not see. They wanted to be able to see their gods. So they made statues and, of wood and, and, and silver and iron so that they could see their God. 
<laughs> Mark Dever said several years ago, Steve Jobs did not create the human eye. We don't live in a newly visual age. We have always been visual people. And they want to make these idols. Well, our idols are not quite so immediately visible. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to come to the last uh, series of sermon excerpts here where Hosea is trying to awaken the Israelites to their condition. He's used every rhetorical device that he has. He's used lawsuits and proverbs and word pictures and comparisons and all kinds of things. Today he's going to use a little bit of of history. He's going to get historical. Um, Israel is like her forefather Jacob, and he's going to talk about Jacob. Uh, Today I have another list for you. I have given you a lot of lists uh, through the book of Hosea. I have one more uh, today to help us review and evaluate. These, this list is four symptoms of a life turned from God. We're getting towards the end of this book and Hosea is, is pushing harder, harder against the people. And he's going to give them today some more symptoms of the life that is turned from God. Let's think about this so that we might recognize how much we've been forgiven so that we might love. Well, let's read Hosea. <coughs> I want to read from Hosea 11.12 to 13.3. So follow along in your copies of the Bible as we read here. Hosea 11.12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind. He pursues the east wind all day and multiplies lies and violence. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, Jacob, their forefather, grasped his brother's heel As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. But you must return to your God. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. The merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I have become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of your appointed festivals. I spoke to the prophets, gave them many visions, and told parables through them. Is Gilead wicked? Its people are worthless. Do they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal? Their altars will be like piles of stone on a plowed field. Jacob fled to the country of Aram. Israel served to get a wife and to pay for her. He tended sheep. The Lord used a prophet to bring Israel up from Egypt. By a prophet, he cared for him. But Ephraim has aroused his bitter anger. His Lord will leave on him the guilt of his bloodshed and will repay him for his contempt. When Ephraim spoke, people trembled. He was exalted in Israel, but he became guilty of Baal worship and died. Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of these people, they offer human sacrifices. They kiss calf idols. Therefore, they will be like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears, like a chaff swirling from a threshing floor like smoke escaping through a window. Symptom number one here of a life turned from God, instability, instability. 
That's the emphasis, I think, of verse 12 through chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, They're both about lies. They both mention lies, and verse 1 mentions violence. Now, to understand this, we've got to remember the context, remember uh, where Hosea is and who he is preaching to. Remember that from Genesis 12 through the beginning of 2 Kings, that whole long section of Scripture, God's people have been one, one people, one family, the descendants of Abraham. (laughs) <laughs> At the beginning of Second Kings, though, the nation divides into two, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel has been more wealthy, more prominent, more populous. Uh, Judah has been, though, uh, more faithful to God than Israel has. There's a hint of that in this text. Actually, there's an interesting translation issue in this text. Maybe you notice it as we were reading it. Uh, Hosea is normally speaking to the nation of Israel in the north, occasionally talks to Judah. And look what verse 12, the second half of verse 12 says. My translation says, Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Now, if you have an ESV translation, it doesn't say that at all. It says, Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. The two opposite things. How can that be? Well, the word unruly is the word wandering. So is Judah wandering, walking with God, or wandering away from God? And is the word faithful, does it describe Judah's faithfulness, or does it describe God's faithfulness? Well, the translators of the ESV and the NIV chose to go different ways. The ESV translators are more positive about Judah. That may be right. Uh, Hosea served under the, with the, when Hezekiah was king in Judah, and that was a time of particular revival. They may be right. The NIV, though, is more negative. They may be right. I'll show you why in, in just a minute. But we have these two nations, Israel and Judah. And now here, though, in Hosea's lifetime, there's a new power player in the area named Assyria. The Assyrians are coming. The Assyrians are coming. What are we going to do? What are the Israelites going to do? The answer in this text appears that they're going to do everything they can to get themselves out of trouble except turn to God and trust in Him. (laughs) And the result of that is instability. There's all this lying and all this deceit and all this violence. Do you remember? When we first came to the book of Hosea, I talked about all the kings that had been assassinated in the nation of Israel, all these lies and violence. What are they doing? They're trying to find a king who's going to lead them to stand up to the Assyrians. We're so afraid. We've got to have a king. We've got to have somebody who's going to deliver us. And they make treaties with Assyria. But if that doesn't work, well, let's go make treaties with Egypt. We'll sell them olive oil. Maybe the Egyptians will protect us. Huh, I don't know. All this instability. Uh, Hosea has an image for what it's like. All this, inst- you're running from place to place to try to be safe, to try to find someone, some explanation, somewhere you can go that's safe. You won't go to God. And you know what it's like? You're eating wind, you're feeding on the wind, you're running after the wind to eat. The wind is not very nutritious. Even when you put salt on it, it just is not nutritious. All this running around. Remember in, in Hosea chapter 7, God had compared the people to a bird, like a dove, a senseless dove. They're flying to Assyria. Now they're going to Egypt. They're trying to find some place to, to be safe, except they won't turn to God. There's instability there. It is not wise, I don't think, to jump 
too quickly into cultural analysis. I know people who read one article in the Wall Street Journal and can come up with 47 different ways it reveals how the culture is changing. I'm not, my brain doesn't work that way. But it has been, has it not, it has been disheartening. And that's not even a strong enough word. It has been disheartening to read the news in the last couple of weeks. Uh, after the, the terrible shootings in Orlando, the crime scene was still active. There were still bodies on the ground. Everyone was already arguing about how this, this, this crime should be framed. Gay rights, gun rights, terrorism. How are we going to talk about this? We wouldn't have any problems if, if, if we didn't have all of these guns. Some people are arguing. Apparently the Democrats in Congress think that. Or if the whole country embraced LGBT equality, uh, if, if people cared about other people's rights as much as they care about their guns and things like this wouldn't happen, or if you don't speak out enough about gay rights and you actually can't talk about this, you don't have a legitimate opinion, why won't the president use the term radical Islam? He said it doesn't help. Is this gun rights? Is this gay rights? Is this terrorism? We can't even stop for a little bit to grieve with one another together over this because we're arguing about... What's the cause and what's the solution? And like a dove, we're flying, flitting, arguing from one to the other. No stability. This is what happens to a nation that turns decisively from any sort of biblical worldview. Instability. Such as a cultural reality, though it happens personally, this level of instability. I want to see a study. It's probably, it's already been done. It's probably been funded by the government. But I'd like to see a study about uh, all the promises that are on magazine covers. Um, actually, now it might be more accurate if the study was done about in Pinterest articles. Now, cover stories, cover stories that promise how to, you can be happy, how you can finally be happy. How you can finally be happy with your relationships, your marriage, your weight, your career. Here are all the steps you need. Here are all the secrets on all the magazine covers. And like a bird, people fly from one to the other. Relationship to relationship, hobby to hobby, job to job. Trying to find something to hold on to. The author of, of the book of Hebrews is talking about stability and assurance in our lives. And he, in, in Hebrews 6 he says, we have God's promises that are sure like an anchor in heaven. Um, that, that verse is the basis of the line from the, the, the hymn, The Solid Rock, that we sing. Remember, in every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Turn from God, turn from him, and there will be no stability in your life. Now, symptom number two, self-reliance. Self-reliance. Symptom number two is Self-reliance. That's the emphasis of chapter 12, verses 2 through 6. Verse 2 says, God has a charge to bring against Judah. So Hosea normally speaks to Israel. Now he's talking to Judah. Maybe the NIV is correct in being more negative about Judah. Well, he has a charge to bring about Judah. And the charge is that the people are just like Jacob. They're just like their ancestor, Jacob. Jacob's life told us for us in the book of Genesis. We studied it not too long ago in our Sunday school class. And, and here there are scenes from Jacob's life that are referred to. And the scenes emphasize how much Jacob is a manipulative, scheming... Uh, what noun to end that sentence with? Guy. <laughs> That'll be safe. That's safe. He's manipulative. He's scheming. Oh, well, the scenes. Look. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. Why? Because he wanted to come out first. 
As a man, he struggled with God. He wrestled with God. We, we can read that in Genesis. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. Now, Hosea's not easy on us. When does he, he weep? The sentence seems to think that Jacob wept before the angel, except there's no account of that in the book of Genesis. The only time Jacob wept that we can tell in the book of Genesis is when he's with Esau, still trying to manipulate and control his brother. He found him at Bethel. Maybe that's God found Jacob at Bethel. Talked with him there. Is, Is Bethel maybe the place where finally Jacob surrendered to God, but... All the time before then, he's just been fighting and scheming and lying and manipulating to get what he wants. And is, is Jacob like that? The question that, the, that is set before the men and women of Judah is this. Are you going to be self-reliant like Jacob? Are you going to try to control and manipulate your world to your liking? Or is there going to be a moment in your life when you finally surrender to God, when you finally reorient yourself to God's word and God's will and God's way? How do you know if you're a self-reliant person? I bet there's a lot of ways you can tell. A lot of them. I I heard this week about one of uh, those ways that you can tell if you're a self-reliant person. Maybe this scenario will sound familiar to you. Do you remember remember Rutherford Hayes? (laughs) Rutherford who? Rutherford Hayes. Rutherford Hayes was the 19th president of the United States. He was one of those bearded men who served in the Oval Office between Lincoln and Roosevelt. And nobody knows anything about Rutherford B. Hayes except for the fact, maybe you remember, his election was one of the most contested elections in the history of the country. And his wife, you probably remember his wife, because she, after she died, because she refused to serve alcohol in the White House, everybody started calling her Lemonade Lucy. Well, Rutherford B. Hayes uh, uh, grew up in um, a difficult house. Uh, Rutherford B. Hayes' parents had four or five children. All of them died in infancy except Rutherford B. Hayes and his older sister. And in fact, uh, a couple of months before Rutherford Hayes was born, his mother was seven months pregnant with him, his father died. This poor woman. She's buried two or three children and a husband. And here's how she responded to her children. She became overprotective and critical. This is intention with her son her whole life. She exercises very strict control of him. He could not do anything that was even hinted at a risk. So she, she could overprotective, controlling. And then when she, he did not live up to her expectations, the guy was elected president, you think that'd be good enough, but when, when he didn't live up to her expectations, she pecked and picked and pecked and complained and complained. Now why? These two things are, are related. See, her children were her whole life. If she was going to be a successful person, if she was going to be a worthy person, she had to make them succeed. This is how she justified and and protected her existence. This is why she mattered, why she was a good person, because she had successful children. This is a form of self-reliance. I'm going to justify my existence by my ability to control and protect my children. Jacob lied, he deceived, he manipulated. Mrs. Hayes controlled and demanded and criticized to get her way. Does that sound familiar to you? It's interesting. This happens, doesn't it? Uh, 
we, we live in a culture, in our church, we, we value children, we value marriage. And, and it's very tempting to fall into this notion that, that the, the um, goodness of your children is a reflection on your own spirituality, on your own life. That temptation? You face that temptation? I, I do. First Timothy three tells me my job is dependent upon how my children obey me. So I got to do everything I can to control their behavior, or at least convince you that I'm a good parent. Now, the good news in this text, we move on from self-reliance. If we're thinking about this, the good news in this text is the invitation in verse six. It's an invitation that's offered all the time in the Old Testament prophets. Return to God. Maintain love and justice. That's a, that, that phrase, maintain love and justice, is a phrase that God uses. The Bible uses a lot to describe God. This is what He does. This is who He is. He maintains love and justice. He upholds His love and justice. And because God does it, that's why we can wait for Him. Wait for God. Wait on Him. This is what we expect from Him. Rely on Him. This is an invitation that some of you need to hear this morning. He is a God who invites His people to return to Him. There's a temptation, and every single one of us in this room faces it, a temptation to waver and to wander and to walk away and to become lax as you follow. This happens to us. We walk by faith and not by sight, and sometimes our faith falters. We sing about it in our hymns, don't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Or we sing that song, uh, He Will Hold Me Fast. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Here's this call. Return. Return to Him. Turn again and, and follow Him. Why can you? Because God is the one who maintains love and justice. There's this constant invitation. Come back, come back, come back. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you should know that the clearest evidence we have in the Bible of his willingness to receive us is the cross of Christ, his son. God has done everything that is necessary for you to turn to him. On the cross, his justice is displayed. He maintains justice. He will not allow one sin to go ignored or unanswered. He has paid for them all. And he's done it for the sake of his love. You can turn to him. You can trust in him because his love and justice have been definitively upheld at the cross and he invites you over and over again to turn to him, to come home. Let's move on to symptom number three. Symptom number three. It's in verses 7 through 14 and I'm going to summarize it with the word arrogance. Arrogance. Arrogance that will not respond to God's word. This morning we sang several songs about the Bible. Here's why we sang those songs about the Bible. Um, there in these verses, there are in these verses in verses um, uh, seven through fourteen two competing claims. Verse eight, Ephraim says, "I am very rich, and no one can condemn me of any sin." Well, my translation obscures it a little bit. Verse 9 is a competing claim. I am the Lord your God. Oh. In contrast to their boasting, I am rich. Well, I am God. (laughs) 
And, and he says, I will make you live in tents again. What does that mean? Well, remember that um, uh, one t- once a year, the Israelites moved out of their house for a week into tents, and it was, it was a, a celebration they were supposed to do so, remembering how they lived in tents, and God had led them in the wilderness, and they lived in tents. God said, I'll send you back. I brought you out of those tents. I'll send you back into those tents. And then he says, I spoke to the prophets, and the prophets spoke to you. So we have this contrast. Ephraim says, I am rich, and no one has ever condemned me of sin. And God says, I am the Lord your God, and I sent you prophet after prophet after prophet, and you did not listen. And then the Jacob comes in again in the passage, and it's hard to understand why. Can I tell you, just frankly, it's hard to understand why. Verse 12, Jacob fled to the country of Aram to get a wife. Maybe, maybe in the passage God is comparing Israel to Jacob. They were both wanderers. Uh, they both worked as slaves. Maybe he's making a comparison. Actually, the, the, the clearest comparison here is how Jacob tended sheep. That's the same word that's used in verse 13 to describe how the prophet cared for them. Jacob cared for sheep. God cared for the people. How did he do it? Through prophets. And yet what we have in this, people, in this nation is that prophets, prophets that were ignored. I'm Ephraim. I'm rich. No one's going to condemn me. God says, I sent you a lot of prophets who told you the truth about yourself, and you didn't listen. During our congregational meeting this month, we were reading uh, our covenant. Our covenant it re- reminded me, our church covenant, of one of our values as a church. We are people who are committed together to leading lives that are governed by God's Word. We, we orient ourselves around God's Word. It's what shapes what we do. We come to God's Word expecting it to correct us and to challenge us and to change us, to form our priorities and our values and desires. Two weeks ago, the uh, Lancaster newspaper featured an article by Dr. Rachel Levine. I wonder if you saw that. Uh, Dr. Levine is the physician general uh, for Pennsylvania. And uh, the article described what it means to be a transgendered person. And the point of her article was that transgendered people are trying to become their true selves. That's a phrase she used. To identify as who they really are, to be their true selves. I'm not trying to downplay the internal turmoil that that can take place in the life of someone who feels disassociated with their body. I'm not questioning that. I'm not uh, turning that aside. I would like to ask, oh, very gently, I would like to say, instead of using pills and surgery to bring your body in conformity with your feelings, your identity, perhaps it would be wise to try to bring your identity in conformity with your body? It's a good question to ask. Some circles, that's a hateful question to ask. It'd be a good question to ask. We want to uh, uh, be our true selves. Our commitment, though, is to the idea that God himself defines who we are, that our true self is embodied in who he says that we are. We're not defining ourselves for ourselves we are allowing him to identify and who we are. It's this stance uh, under the word of God that applies to you regardless of your inclinations or orientations. God defines who we are. We, we listen to what he says. 
it's, it's an arrogance. There's an arrogance about self-identification. Now, symptom number four. Symptom number four, misplaced affections. Misplaced affections. Chapter 13 seems to go back to a day when, when Israel, called Ephraim here, was powerful. When Ephraim spoke, people trembled. But then he became guilty of Baal worship and lost all of that, that power. And notice how it describes their love for their idols. They make idols for themselves from their silver. A lot of money involved. And then they're kissing these calf idols. And now we come back to the issue of love that we started with. This is their allegiance, their devotion to, and it extended maybe all the way to human sacrifice here. They love their idols. We're those who, who love the Lord Jesus. We are not content with just behavior modification. We're not content with just talking about our beliefs as if they have to agree with facts. There is an affection involved in our faith. There is an allegiance involved in it. We are conscious of what we love and why. And here they love the calf idol. They love the calf idol because they thought it brought them everything that they have. But in reality, it made them arrogant and self-reliant and boastful and violent, dishonest. More and more judgment comes. Next week, we're going to talk about the finality of judgment in the book of Hosea. We gather together to remember that God has called us out. He's called us out to face our true condition before him, to cultivate, in contrast, love for him. Here's the problem. We want to see the full extent of the problem so that we can truly appreciate the goodness of God's solution. Because those who have been forgiven much love much. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we confess to you again that you have set before us in your word uh, fields that are hard to plow, um, images that are sometimes hard to understand. You, you stretch our mind and our imagination in this book as we read, but you, you open up our minds so that you might pierce our consciences with the truths that are here. Lord, we, we confess, all of us in this room, we have walked in self-reliance and arrogance. We have experienced the instability, the misplaced affections of those who have turned from you. Thank you for rescuing us through the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the one who maintains love and justice. You did it at the cross. Lord, cultivate in us a clear knowledge of what you have done, what we have done before you, so that we might love the Lord Jesus much. We pray these things together in his name, saying, Amen. Just a moment, we will sing over again. Oh, okay.
Señor. 